Glad that y'all are with us today. Hopefully, when you came in, you picked up a worship guide, or as Chad mentioned a moment ago, maybe you're using the digital version online. Either way, on the back of the worship guide is the sermon notes for today. We as a church family are reading through the New Testament together, a chapter a day, five days a week, and we are getting near the end. Uh, literally, we're at the end of the New Testament right now as we're reading the book of Revelation, and then when we finish Revelation in a couple of weeks, we'll turn back to the front of the New Testament and we'll read Matthew because we've not read Matthew this calendar year yet as a church family. But right now we are in a series on the book of Revelation and we're simply calling it glory because everything in the book of Revelation is about God's glory. So I would encourage you, if you've got a Bible handy, whether you own one that you have with you or whether it's on your phone or whether you grab a Bible that's in a chair near you, there should be one underneath you or around you, grab your Bible and turn to the end of the New Testament, which is the end of the Bible, and find the book by the name of Revelation. Uh, many of us probably are quite familiar, at least, with the idea of Revelation, intrigued by Revelation, and we are in the second week of this series from the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to take that uh, copy of Scripture home with you. We'd love to share that with you and give that to you. I wanted not to preach uh, all of the first seven book, uh, sorry, chapters of Revelation, but I do want to reference uh, the chapters that kind of lead up to where we'll be looking today in Revelation chapter 7. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to do kind of Reader's Digest, if you will, of the first few chapters of Revelation. Here's what it says in Revelation 1.1. We see that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that means it's from him and about him, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending an, his angel to his servant John. So John the Apostle got this revelation from God that came through an angel and recorded it in order that we might be able to see it. And it says right there in the middle of the verse, the things that must soon take place. At our hope group this past uh, Tuesday night, we talked about what does soon take place mean. That's a big part of the conversation as we try to understand the book of Revelation. Perhaps you've heard uh, this phrase, the things that might soon take place. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the last days. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the great tribulation. Like, what is all of that about? There's a lot of differing views about it, but I basically believe that what the last days are, they first of all either have to be literally the last few days before the world comes to an end, or the last days, or the things that must happen soon, could refer to the things that take place from the time that Jesus is resurrected until Jesus comes back. To this point, that's almost 2,000 years, right? And I believe that whenever we see the last days or things that must soon take place, more often than not, it is in reference to this larger category from when Jesus has been resurrected, finished his work on this earth, until that day in the future, wherever that may be, that Jesus comes back. So that all believers in this church age have literally and will literally live in the last days. The book of Revelation was written around the year 8090, 
and it was written to seven churches in Asia. And you can see that in verse 4 of chapter 1 as well as verse 11 of chapter 1. And then when you get to chapters 2 and 3, John writes individual letters to those specific churches, all seven of those churches. He writes four of them in one chapter and three of them in the other chapter. And you can read that uh, at a later point if you haven't already. Then we transition in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it transitions more to the vision or the revelation that John sees that he is recording for us to understand what these last days look like. And in chapter 4, the scene transitions to the throne room of God, the throne room of God in heaven. If you've got your Bible open, open, your Bibles opened, I'd like for you to look down at chapter 4, verse 4, and then down in verse 6. We're introduced to two different types of characters in these verses, and they're going to reappear in chapter 7. So that's why I pointed out here. In verse 4 of chapter 4, we see there are 24 elders. And then in verse 6, we see at the end of verse 6 that there are four living creatures. So there's 24 elders, he says, and four living creatures. Again, because it's the book of Revelation, there's a lot of varying views on who these elders are and what they represent and who these living creatures are and what they represent. But I believe that what it is pointing to is probably angelic type beings because every time you see the elders mentioned and the the living creatures mentioned they are usually lumped with other angels and they're not usually lumped together with the redeemed or the saints in heaven and and they they show up kind of differently than those who are people that show up in the book of revelation i want us to look briefly at this 24 and 4 says there are 24 elders. In the book of Revelation and in apocalyptic literature in general, numbers are very significant. So if you know uh, much about the Bible, if you don't, that's okay. We're going to fill in the blanks. In the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel, which are the people of God. In the New Testament, you have the 12 apostles that God uses to share the gospel with those around them. And so when you put 12 and 12 together, that gives you 24. And so you have 24 elders representing all of or the entirety of the people of God of all times. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles from the New Testament. And then with the living creatures, if you go back to chapter 4, you'll see that the living creatures are described as looking similar to or like something. One of them looks like, it says, an ox. One of them looks like a lion. One of them looks like a man. One of them looks like an eagle. This idea of the variety of different creatures or creations, along with the number four, seems to indicate to me that this represents all of God's creation. The reason I say that is because we have living creatures, animals and humans, represented among these four living creatures. Also, the number four typically refers to the things of the earth, and so its entirety, God created it all, and I believe that the 24 elders represent all of God's people and the four living creatures point towards all of creation. And whenever you look at chapter 4, you you might want to glance down at verses 8 through 11. They are worshiping God. In verse 8 it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And so all of God's people, the 24 elders, all of creation, the four living creatures, 
Everything that God put together is designed to bring him glory, to worship him, and to bring him honor. Then we go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, we see that there's an angel in heaven, and he has this scroll, and this scroll is sealed up with seven seals, and he is lamenting the fact that there's no one that can open this scroll until someone shows up. You know who shows up? It says the lamb showed up. You're like, why is there an animal here? No, this is not an animal. This is the Lamb of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. The Lamb stands up in chapter 5, and they say, worthy is the Lamb, for he can take the scroll, and he can open the scroll. And then chapter 6 begins with quite interesting details of the scrolls being opened. There are seven uh, seals. In chapter 6, we see six of them opened, the seventh is not open until chapter 8, but we want to look at chapter 6 for just a minute. At the beginning of chapter 6, you're going to see in verses 1 and 2 that there is a rider on a white horse who comes, and he has a bow and crowns given to him, and he's conquering, and he is able to conquer everything. I believe that this first seal is pointing to the fact that Jesus is victor, he is king, he is conqueror, and he reigns over it all. So that's the starting point. As we begin to unpack history or these last days, and then the next four seals are opened up that I'm not going to look at one by one, but you, you can see them in chapter 6. And we find in this, in these seals, we see war. We see famine. We see death of all kinds. We see martyrdom where people die for their faith. Jot this down in your notes and maybe look at it later today. Matthew chapter 24. I would love for you to read Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 side by side. Because in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes what the last days and the great tribulation will look like. He begins to talk about how you'll know at the end of the days have come. And he says, in certain places, but don't worry, that's just the beginning of it and more is to come. Compare Matthew 24, Jesus' words, along with John's vision that he sees in chapter 6. And you're going to see, I believe, that those two chapters are very much connected. And then it, it finishes. Well, let me, let me back up for just a second. Both chapter Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, I believe, points to the last days that fall between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again. And what we see in here is there will be hardship. There will be suffering. There will be sadness. There will be persecution. There will be difficulty. And when John writes that to his original hearers as well as to us, we can take heart that we are not, uh, that we are not caught off guard that these are coming. Because what do we see in the first seal? That Jesus is the conquering one. And he empowers us to, to push through the difficulty that we face in life. So don't be surprised by sufferings and difficulties in life. It's coming. And in just a minute, when we get to chapter 7, we're going to come across the phrase, the great tribulation. The phrase great tribulation is also found in Matthew chapter 24. And once again, this is one of those topics that have varying uh, uh, beliefs about what does he mean by the great tribulation? Some believe that the Great Tribulation is literally seven years at the end of history where this climactic tribulation period takes place. And at the same time, there are some that say, well, looking at various things that Jesus says and does, including one of the letters that he writes 
to one of the churches in Revelation that the Great Tribulation seems to speak in more of a general sense of the tribulation that all of us will face as we go through life. Either way, at the end of chapter 6, I want us to look at this because it's going to set us up with where we're going in chapter 7. Look at the last two verses of chapter 6. Verses 16 and 17. This is the last seal that's opened in chapter 6. It's the sixth seal. And, and before that, it describes the world coming to an end, essentially. That, that history is coming to a culmination. That the earth, as we know it, is being wiped out and destroyed. And then we come to verses 16 and 17. And it says, calling to the mountains and rocks, they will cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath, talking about God and the Lamb, God and the Son of God, has come and who can stand. So as you walk through Revelation chapter 6, you're going to see God's punishment and God's wrath that is poured out on the sins of this world. And it concludes by saying, who can stand before God in all of his wrath? Now we get to the good news. We get to the answer of that question as we turn the page to chapter 7. And that's where we're going to look at this morning. You'll see on your notes that we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. And the title that I chose is, is, is as if God is speaking these words. And that is, I will be exalted among the nations. Chapter 7 answers that question of who can stand, withstand God's wrath on that final day. And the only answer are those who have been saved and sealed by the work of of the Lamb. The judgment day is coming. Either you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus or you have not. If you've placed your, placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, then you can withstand his wrath because his wrath will not be poured out on you because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been spilled on your behalf. However, if you've not trusted in Jesus, the day is coming that you will experience the wrath of God in eternal separation forever from a good, holy God in a horrible place called hell. I want us to look at what the scene in heaven, though, looks like. So, chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins uh, in, in verse 1, talking about after everything he's seen so far, he turns and he sees the four angels, he sees the four corners of the earth, he describes everything that's taking place, and then in verse 4, it says, and I heard the number of the sealed, those who are saved in Jesus Christ, and that number is 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and then the next one, two, three, four verses walks through 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, and we get 144,000. So he's standing in heaven. He sees 144,000, or at least what he's using to describe the people, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, let us pause for just a moment. He says, who can withstand the wrath of God? He says these 144,000. Is he talking about a literal number of 144,000? Some believe he is. I don't believe he is at all. Rather, what I believe is, again, the, the, the math, the, the numbers, the, the meaning behind the numbers. How do you get to 144,000? You multiply 12 times 12 times 1,000 and you get 144,000. We said earlier, 
12 is a significant number. It represents God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, apostles in the New Testament. You multiply those together, you multiply 1,000, you get 144,000. Throughout Scripture, we see that number 1,000 is a significant number. Sometimes it's a literal number. Sometimes it's pointing towards a great multitude, a fullness of numbers, if you will. A great number, a multitude, an immensity of numbers. So I believe that when you multiply the 12 times 12 times 1,000, getting the 144,000, this 144,000 represents the great multitude of all God's people through the ages that are protected from the wrath of God because they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They've been saved by Jesus. They've been sealed by his blood and by his word. And now they stand in the great throne room of God, not in judgment, but in the presence of God worshiping him. So now... Let's get to our actual text. We're going to read verses 9 through 12. I believe that what is referenced in verses 1 through 8 is the exact same thing that's referenced in verses 9 through 12. I believe it's kind of like uh, looking at two different perspectives. He uses figurative language, descriptive language to describe the throne room of God and the vast number of people that are there. All of God's people have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, and he uses those 144,000 to represent it. And then in verses 9 through 12, we're going to see it described in a different fashion, but I believe it's representing the exact same group of people. The first one, he, he, he hears. The second one, he sees. It's the same group. Let's pick up the story. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. He says, after this, meaning after he had heard the, 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 the 144,000, he says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, another way to say 144,000, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Again, you see how angels, elders, and creatures are lumped together separately from the vast multitudes. These groups were standing together, and it says, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. Listen to what they say. Amen. We agree with them. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. On your notes, you're going to see this first sentence. Back in September, uh, Nathan, uh, one of our other elders, and I had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. to um, a conference at David Platt's church. He's a pastor in D.C. And this phrase that Revelation 7, 9 speaks to, I'm borrowing from him. And here's what it says. The ultimate purpose of God is to bring people from all nations to enjoy and exalt him in all of his glory. I want us to look at each section of this sentence and see how it ties back into Revelation chapter 7, specifically verse 9. It says the ultimate purpose. 
What is God's ultimate purpose? If we're not careful, we'll make worshiping God, church attendance, reading the Bible, doing the things of God. If we're not careful, we'll make them all about us. But in reality, it's not about me. It's not about this church. Rather, it's about God and his glory. God's ultimate purpose is that all of us would bring him glory. Don't get tripped up and think that it's about you. It's not. All of life is completely about God and his glory, and that's a good thing. It says that his ultimate purpose is to bring people from all nations. Look at verse 9. I think it's interesting that in heaven, apparently the beautiful tapestry and diversity that we experience here on earth is witnessed in heaven. We don't all just enter into heaven and look identical. Rather, somehow, someway, God still maintains the beautiful diversity that he's given to us. And he's able to witness and see that this group of people are not all from the same place. Rather, it says they're from every nation. They're from all tribes. They're from all peoples. They're from all languages. That phrase, this idea of nations, tribes, peoples, and languages, that phrase or a variation of that phrase is used seven times in the book of Revelation. Side note, seven usually means perfection. And so I think seven times that that's mentioned is a very important thing for us to see. That all throughout the book of Revelation, we see that it's God's desire to bring people from all walks of life, from all skin colors, from all ethnicities, from all languages, from every corner of this planet. I know the planet doesn't have corners, but bear with me. Every area on this globe God's desire is that those people would bring him glory. Those people would bring him honor and praise. Did you know that that's what, been, what God's purpose has been all along? Let's look at a couple of verses. Back in Genesis chapter 12, it should be on the screen. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. These are God's words to Abram, or who would end up being called Abraham. This is Abram's call to lead God's people and the promise that God makes to him. Look at the last of verse 3. It says, And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Hebrew word there for family means tribe, people, nation. Sounds pretty similar to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Then we can move to the New Testament. You're probably familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus' last words that are recorded in the book of Matthew while he is on earth with his disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, that's on the screen as well. We can look at all of the Great Commission, but let's look specifically at the beginning. It says, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations. The Greek word here for uh, nations is ethnos or ethnos, depending on how you want to pronounce that. The word is ethnos or ethnos. And that word is the same word that's used in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And then speaking of the end times and speaking of Matthew 24, I want us to look at one verse from Matthew 24 together. In Matthew 24, verse 14, here's what Jesus says. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, ethnos, and then the end will come. So when does the end come? We don't know, but it comes at some point after all the nations have heard of the glory of God. So a biblical basis is the fact that God has always desired to reach people from all nations. 
I wanted to talk real quickly about the global reality, though. God's desire is that people from every single people group, not just every nation that we can draw a square or a shape around, but every single people group would come to worship him. Did you know that in the world today, these numbers come from a place called Joshua Project and some other places, did you know that in the world today there are approximately 17,000 different people groups? And of those 17,000, did you know that over 7,000 of them are unreached? What does unreached mean? It means that they have no access to the gospel. Did you know that the world has 7.8 billion people in it? And that today, approximately over 3 billion of those people are in unreached people groups. To do the math, that means somewhere over 40% of the world People groups, as well as the actual population of the world, live in a place where they have no access to the gospel. Jesus is calling us as his church to be part of the solution to get the hope of Jesus Christ to all people, of all nations, of all tribes, of all peoples, of all languages. Let me look at one more aspect of this sentence. The ultimate purpose of God is to bring people from all nations to enjoy and exalt him in all of his glory. Let's look at that last part. To enjoy and to exalt him in all of his glory. There is no one else, there is nothing else worthy of our honor and our worship and our praise than Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy and therefore he alone should we exalt and worship and glorify and enjoy You see, God created us in his image to enjoy and exalt him. But we see in scripture that all people of all nations have sinned against a holy, perfect God. So God made us in his image to worship him. But according to what we see in scripture, our sin prevents us from worshiping him. In in Romans Paul says, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us is a sinner. And we fall short of what God's intention is for us. We can't worship him. We can't glorify him. We can't be in his presence. We can't be like the 144,000 in the throne room safely. Rather, all of us, because of our sin, deserve the wrath and punishment from God. The Bible tells us that what we earn or deserve for our sin is separation from God for all eternity. So that means the day would come where all of us would be in an eternity separated from God, not allowed into heaven, but actually in a horrible place called hell. But the good news is this, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, That if we should believe in him, we should not perish, but we would have eternal or everlasting life. So the good news is this, that yes, we fall short of his glory, but our sins can be forgiven. And the only way that our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God again is if we place our faith and our trust that what Jesus did on our behalf by dying on the cross for our sins and raising on the third day that if we trust in him, we can be saved. So my question for you this morning is this. If you were to ask the question, 
who can withstand the wrath of God. And you found out only those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Would you face the wrath of God or have you been sealed by the blood of Christ? And it's our job, those of us that have trusted in Jesus, to go out and tell others the good news of Jesus. So on your sermon notes, you see that his ultimate purpose is to bring people from all nations to enjoy and exalt him in all of his glory. And so I've got three questions that I want to ask based out of that. And here's the first one. Will he accomplish his purpose? Side note real quick. The easy answer is Yes, he will accomplish his purpose. Why is that? Because God is perfect. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is in control. And scripture tells us time and time again that no one and nothing can thwart his plan or his purposes. So yes, we know that he will accomplish this. Secondly, we know he accomplishes it because it is written for us to see right here in Revelation 7, 9. If that's his purpose and his plan and his idea, mission accomplished. Chapter 7, verse 9 says that he saw a great multitude, and that great multitude was so large you could not even begin to count it. And that those people in that multitude came from every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. God will accomplish his purpose. So what is that multitude doing what are they doing? They're standing in the throne room of God. We see there at the end of verse 9, it says that they are clothed in white robes. It says that they have palm branches in their hands. It says in verse 10 that they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These people in the presence of God, are worshiping him for all eternity for the salvation that he has brought to them. Do you remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem that last week, right before he would be uh, arrested and crucified? Uh, we, we call it the triumphal entry on that Sunday. We, we, we today might call it Palm Sunday. And the reason we call it Palm Sunday is because as Jesus is victoriously going into the city of Jerusalem, People are waving palm branches and singing Hosanna and praise to Jesus. Now, we'll find out they don't necessarily stick with what they're saying a little bit later in the week, but the idea is that the palm branches were used as an identification of worshiping God. And so in the throne room of God in heaven, these people are waving palm branches and worshiping God. Please note, please note in verse 6, it says, Salvation belongs to our God. It's his work, not ours. It's his doing, not ours. It's his free gift of his grace through faith, not anything that we do. It's not our work. We don't own it. We don't call the shots. We don't stipulate how it happens. It's all on him. And we can be thankful for that. It says that they're wearing white robes. What, what is all of this about? Look down in verse 13 and 14, and you'll find the answer. It says in 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? Now the elder knows, he's just kind of asking, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? Who are they? Who is this multitude? Who is this 144,000? Who is this that's wearing a white robe and waving the palm branches? And John says to him, sir, you know. In other words, I have no clue. Please fill me in. This is all new to me. And here's what he says. 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So there's that phrase, great tribulation. Could be the last seven years of history of the great tribulation. Or what I think is teaching is all of the tribulation from the time of Jesus' resurrection to his second coming. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the reason they're wearing white robes is because it's the righteousness of God that is put on them through the blood and work of Jesus Christ. So this vast multitude that's before the throne of God are those that have been sealed and saved by the work of Jesus, made righteous and therefore able to stand in his presence, not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. And because of that, they are worshiping him and saying, praise be to God, for salvation belongs to him. Then after that description, look down at verses 11 and 12. It says that because of what takes place among the vast multitude, in 11 and 12, it says the angels, the elders, the creatures, they all fell on their faces. They didn't trip. They went on purpose. They're laying prostrate before, prostrate. There we go. That's a big different word. Prostrate. <laughs> Me and my words today. Prostrate before God, worshiping him. Look at this doxology or form of praise that they share in verse 12. I want you to look at how many descriptive words there are. There are seven descriptive words. Again, the perfect number. Like we can list a million things about who God is, but I think he writes seven on purpose because these seven fit and it's the perfect number, if you will, a complete number. It says, here's what they say, amen, and here is their worship of God, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When the angels, when all of creation see what God has done in his great amount of grace that he has given to his people, they fall down before him in worship and adoration for who God is. You and I should be just like these living creatures and these 24 elders in awe and reverence and thankfulness for what God has done for us, crying things like blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. So will God accomplish his ultimate purpose? A resounding yes. Look at the next question on your page. It says, how will he accomplish it? So if you'd looked at your notes, you'd know that the answer was yes, because I'm asking the question, how does he accomplish it? And let's look at it. First and foremost, through his work. Whose work of salvation? His. So Jesus did the work. Who does the convicting? The Holy Spirit. It's all God. The triune God brings salvation. So how does he accomplish it? Through the work of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Father by sending the Son. In addition to that, God chooses to use you, you and me. He uses us. You see, you and I are to enjoy and exalt God in all of his glory among all the nations so that we look for opportunity as every Christian and every church looks for opportunities to point others to the hope that's found in Christ. You see, our worship of God isn't just for us. Our worship of God is for his glory, which means his glory must extend throughout all of the earth. So when we gather as a church body, this is very much the body of Christ, while we also pray for our brothers and sisters all over this globe. 
while we also pray for people who doesn't, don't yet know Jesus, that they might come to salvation in Jesus Christ. So God's desire that we see at the beginning of your sermon notes should be our desire as well. And we should be zealous about getting the gospel to all people groups all over this planet. When we think about missions, missions is going to another, my definition of missions, is going to another culture, whether that's a different language, a different skin color, a different region of the country, but crossing some kind of cultural barrier to take the gospel to someone who doesn't yet know the gospel. And the idea is that we need to see that missions is not some kind of optional program in the church for a few members of the church to do, but rather missions is the responsibility of every disciple of Jesus Christ. That as a disciple of Jesus, we're given the task and responsibility and the privilege to spread God's glory among the nations to make disciples of all nations. It's my prayer that we would have the ambition that Paul has. Look with me real quickly. Romans chapter 15, it'll be on the screen. Verses 20 and 21. We jump in the middle of what Paul's saying here, but I want you to see what Paul says. Paul says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but all, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. His desire was to take the gospel to those who haven't yet heard the gospel. That goes hand in hand with what it says in Romans 10, verse 14. Romans 10, verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how, do, sorry, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's not about preachers. That's about any disciple sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So how will he accomplish his purpose? It's his work. He'll do it, and he chooses to use us along the way. Now let's look at the last question that I have here. What should our response be? What are we going to do with this text? I've got five things, and I would encourage you to write each one of these down. The first one is this, and you can use a different word if you want to because it's kind of a big word, but recalibrate your purpose and joy. In other words, think through what, is, what gives me purpose and what gives me joy. Is it to enjoy and exalt God in all of his glory, or is it something else? So the first step, our first response should be to recalibrate our purpose and joy so that it is to enjoy and exalt God in all of his glory. I think that the worship that we see displayed in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, is the same thing we should be doing, worshiping God wholly and fully with all that we have. In verse 12, there are seven things that are described. We went through that a couple of times, and what I want us to acknowledge is that you and I don't give these things to God. He already has them intrinsically, but the reality is we're called to call attention to that and acknowledge that and worship those character traits of God. The reason I think that we should recalibrate our purpose and joy is because all too often other things rob our purpose and joy. If I'm not careful, I say it jokingly, I think I'm doing much better than I used to, but if I'm not careful this time of year, I can get my eyes on the wrong thing, especially if the football team I cheer for is winning. If I'm not careful, I can think that my hopes and purpose of life ride on a stinking game of football and whether my team wins or loses. 
I somewhat exaggerate over that, but I'm saying that things like that can distract us. So is there something or someone that's got your purpose and your glory? It should be all about God. The second response is to pray. Here's who we should pray for. Pray for all peoples to come to know Christ and to bring him glory. If God's purpose is that people of all nations and tribes and languages and, and peoples would come to know him, then we should pray for that to come about. One of the tools that I like to point people to is, is the Joshua Project. And I've got a, their website that can uh, show up on the screen. If you've never been to their website, I encourage you to go to joshuaproject.net. They also have an app called Unreached People. I don't know exactly what it's called, but talk with me later, I'll tell you. Unreached People Group of the Day or something like that. And you'll see that today, November 7th, we are praying for the, and I don't know how to say it, but the pronunciation is there, Karinchi, Karinchi people of Bahrain. And, and there's all kinds of information. There's a map that shows you where Bahrain is, tells you what the population of this people group is. It happens to be 27,000 in that nation. The whole population around the world is 329,000. Not a huge people group, but some of the people groups you'll run into will be in the millions. And there's all kinds of descriptions, and you can scroll on down and go to the next portion of this, and you'll see up there there's all kinds of descriptions of how you can pray for them, what the obstacles are for their faith, uh, outreach ideas, a scripture passage, a scripture prayer, and then a prayer focus. And if, I know the words may be small on the screen, so I'm reading them for you, but you can go to joshuaproject.net and get this today. But at the top, um, you will see under ministry obstacles that this people group uh, worship Islam, but also they have animistic beliefs. And in their daily lives, they'll use phrases, and there's their language there that I'm not going to try to say, uh, but the words mean met with a ghost, hit by a ghost, stepped on by a ghost. You can see they're really wrapped up in a spiritual understanding that's not a biblical spiritual understanding of an animistic kind of view. And so down in the prayer focus, it takes that and says, pray for God's abundant spirit and physical blessing for them. Pray that the love of the Savior would come to them. Pray for their elders and decision makers to accept those who come in the name of the Lord. Pray for a movement to, uh, uh, to Christ among the people. And there was somewhere else on there that I'm not seeing right now that kind of takes the spiritual things they have going on so that you can pray specifically for that. You don't have to use the Joshua Project, but that is one tool that you can use to pray for people groups by name. And then also uh, at the end of the month, we're going to be having a prayer, a week of prayer for international missions. It's a part of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. And you'll get a prayer guide that will also walk you through how to pray for people of other uh, that don't know Jesus. So the second response should be prayer. The third response is this. Go to the nations. Go to the nations. Did you notice that in Jesus' great commission, he did not say, make disciples among as many people as possible. He said, make disciples of all nations. The great commission is a specific commandment to make disciples of all nations. Yes, let's live it out here and tell people about Jesus here, but we cannot do that to the neglect of telling people in other parts of the world about Jesus as well. Now, COVID was a thing that happened to us, as well as to the world, that kind of messed up some travel things, where 
countries wouldn't allow you to come in and we couldn't go there and made traveling difficult but our plan as staff and elders is to begin to open up again in the year 2022 so that we can begin to go to the nations again so that we can go places around the world and I know that David is working with different missionaries to see when and how that can happen we also are planning different training programs or events or activities for you and I to either learn how to or freshen up on how to share the gospel. So going to the nations should literally be us going there as well as going to the nations here. That takes me to number four. Another response should be that we should welcome the nations as they come. Welcome the nations as they come to us. Have you been to the grocery store lately? There are people, and I absolutely love it, from all over this world in our city. Texas A&M, I don't know if you've heard of that school or not, but it's right here in town. All kinds of people come from everywhere. And because of Texas A&M, we have access to people from other nations to share the gospel with them. You see, going overseas is important, but also we can welcome people as they come to us. One of the ways we can do that is through the BSM. The BSM stands for Baptist Student Ministry. In your worship guide, halfway down the announcements is the Baptist Student Ministry Thanksgiving meal. This is a meal for the international students where hundreds if not a thousand international students will be there and you can begin to form relationships with people from other nations with the explicit purpose of beginning to share the gospel with them. Lots of ways that we can welcome the nations as they come to us. And here's the last one. Not that this is an exhaustive list, it's just it's the end of my list. Number five, one way we can respond is by giving financially to missions that specifically reach the unchurched. Uh, unreached is what I meant to say. Unchurched, yes, but unreached. Did you know here in the United States, it's hard to really be in an unreached people group because most people know someone that knows Jesus and therefore they have access to the gospel even if it's a limited access but there are many places around the world that people live and die never having known one single Christian it's our job to share the gospel with them there's lots of ways we can do that and one of those ways is financially again something that's in your worship guide at the bottom of the worship guide the next last one says Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Read about that. That's coming up in the month of December. We are giving money that will go to international missions to share the gospel around the world. I challenge you and your family to pray as God leads you to give sacrificially and generously to that. I want to encourage you to give above and beyond. Continue to give what you're giving to the church as we continue to have responsibilities here locally. And the Christmas offering is above and beyond that. And pray that we would give to that so that we can share the gospel around the world. I wanna leave you with this. As you think about financially giving to reach the unreached. Earlier I said that over 40% of the world has no access to the gospel. Yet, listen to this, the vast majority of our mission resources as the church, not just Living Hope, but the church worldwide, the vast majority of our mission resources go to places that are already reached by the gospel. Listen to this, 40% are in unreached people groups, and yet only 1% of all mission dollars are used to reach the unreached. 40% is unreached, and we send 1% of our money to reach them. And of all the missionaries that are sent out around the globe, only 3% of missionaries 
go to the unreached. May we as a church body begin to give and send differently. And may we commit to pray that in this generation, God will rectify this, this um, imbalance that, that's in place. To sum everything up, Revelation 7, 9 through 12 is a great picture of the purpose of God being fulfilled. We said that the ultimate purpose of God is to bring people from all nations to enjoy and exalt him in all of his glory. May we as individuals and may we collectively as a church body seek to live this out as well. Let's pray and act in such a way that shows that we want people from all nations to glorify God. I realize that I may be leaving someone out, and I apologize in advance for this, but I did some thinking this week. Here in our church body, we have some diversity from the nations, not a whole lot, but we do have some. And in our church body, we have folks that are from China, or at least a person in China, Mexico, Pakistan, India, Haiti, Nigeria, maybe some other places. I love that diversity. But let's pray that we will see more and more diversity, because I think that God is calling us to more actively reflect what we see in Revelation 7, 9 in our local body as well, where there are people from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. It all begins by glorifying God and then seeking to extend his glory to all people.